0: Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be examining the Uber files, a data investigation that revealed how Uber flouted laws, duped police, exploited violence against drivers, and secretly lobbied governments around the world during its aggressive global expansion. The Uber Files are a leaked database of Uber's activities in about 40 countries from 2013 to 2017, leaked by the company's senior lobbyist, Mark McGann. This was first published in The Guardian in July 2022. The Guardian shared the database of more than 124,000 files with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and 42 other media outlets. To fully understand how this data leak investigation came together, we sat down with Carrie Cahoe, ICIJ's data journalist, and Amelia Diaz-Struck, ICIJ's data and research editor and Latin America coordinator. All that's coming up after this. Support for this episode of Conversations with Data and the following message come from flockynet.is. Flockynet is a web hosting company that was established in Iceland to provide safe harbor for freedom of speech, free press, and whistleblower projects. The company operates data centers in Iceland, Romania, and Finland. Flockynet's core values revolve around privacy and freedom of speech, while providing autonomous, incorruptible and flexible solutions optimized to help you spread your ideas freely. Use the promotional code DATAJOURNALISM in all caps on Flockynet's website to get 15% off all their servers and products. And don't forget that all registered datajournalism.com users have free web space and domains through Flockynet. Check your profile to find out how to claim it or visit flockynet dot is slash ejc dot php now let's take a listen to our conversation with icij's carrie Keho and amelia diaz struck amelia and carrie welcome to conversations with data thank you
1: hi thanks for having us
0: So um, I just thought we'd get started if perhaps you could briefly introduce yourselves and just tell us about your work and your roles at ICIJ.
2: Yes. Hi. Well, I'm Emilia Diaschuk. I'm ICIJ's data and research editor and I have the privilege and honor to work with our amazing data and research team. We have uh, Augie Armendari, Delphine Reuter, Jelena Kosick, Margot Williams, uh, Miguel Fiandora, and Kerry who is joining us today. Uh, also as part of the podcast and well we we're all about data and like how this can uh, answer address and help um the reporting process so like every time we're working on a project our team jumps in looks at the data does the research and figures out well how can we explore topics systematically how can we mine sometimes millions thousands of records how can we explore data outside like a leak to like mining public records and help that drive the reporting and find stories leads inside the data.
1: I'm Gary. Uh, I'm a data reporter um, on Amelia's team. Um, I'm based in Dublin. Yeah.
0: So let's start with the Uber files. That's what we're going to be talking about today. I wonder if you could give a brief overview of what this data leak was about, how it came about, and you know, maybe talk about the different files and what was covered in this.
2: Yeah, well, uh, the Uber Files, is uh, it's an interesting leak. It's a bit different from other leaks we have worked on before. It's actually based on uh, about uh, more than 124,000 records. Uh, and out of those, we had like about 83,000 emails. Uh, those covered like a time period. They were created between 2013 and 2017, which was a time where uh, Uber was expanding around the world and basically we had a lot of communications, we had meetings, we had a lot of that kind of information it was showing us the tactics Uber was using to gain access to the markets around the world, to influence regulations, to influence people. And then also at the same time, we also had a look at what how they would deal with some cases tied to law enforcement in a couple of countries. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, it's it's connected to Europe. Uh, and we had also some connections with Asia and America, other parts of the world. But most of the of the documents that we had or that we explored were connected to Europe. And it was very interesting because before we have looked a lot into the offshore financial system, but here we were looking at lobbying influence. And like a lot of exchanges of information in emails, and what, that it, what does it mean for a, a company like Uber, and like how they try to get into the market around the world. So it's um, it started with these uh, trove files it arrived to the Guardian. They received them and then they started looking at them and did an initial exploration. They thought, oh, this might be interesting. It's not only tied to the UK; it connects with other countries. They reach out to ICIJ, They have been partners with ICJ many different projects, and then we explore and said, "Oh, actually, yes, this could be an interesting project for our network." So then we started a project and started reviewing which countries are part of this set of files, and started involving partners in other countries that made, like I would say, like that magic happen and the power of collaboration actually allowed us to mine these uh, files, do all the reporting outside the files, and. I think I'd like publish the stories that everyone in the public knows as the Uber files.
0: Brilliant. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the leaks um, related to Mark McGann, the whistleblower behind this. I mean, did did you know at that point that he was the whistleblower when the Guardian kind of fed this to you?
2: No, actually, um, and it was known, like, or it became known that Megan was the source, or he wanted to, like, he decided to go out to the public once uh, once Uber Files was published. So while we were working on the investigation, it, at the beginning, it was like other ICJ projects. This was leaked to a partner, shared with ICJ. Later on, uh, while we were working on the stories, then we published the stories. Once it, it came out, like, then the source decided to go public, basically. So then that's how how it was known afterwards that Megan was the source but like the guardian was dealing with their own sources so and that's what we do with every project when a uh, whistleblower con- contacts a journalist we also respect how uh, like all that process of of uh, how, sor- how sources are dealt by different journalists when we are working on a project so it it became known later on
1: we we were able to post on the ihub um the the platform where we um, we talk and exchange securely um, and ask questions. on again, but uh, like on iHub for the source, and that that's how then the guardian would then relay them back to them. But they really managed that relationship. We didn't have contact.
0: Um, so there seems to be so many different angles to this story, and as you said, it's not really a story maybe that's ICIJ has kind of worked on before because. I don't know. There's tax evasion, which of course you guys have done. But then there's you see Uber having these secret government meetings with the UK government. Then they're cozying up to Russian oligarchs. Then it seems they're promoting violence at the expense of driver safety. You know, false promises are being made to drivers and society about the financial benefits of of Uber. So, how, Carrie, do you go about digging through these large troves of leaked data and and like, where, where did you guys start, I guess, is my perspective.
1: Well, first of all, I absolutely love the story because so many of our investigations are from the offshore service provider aspect where we see what services are being provided for companies. But this is the like for the first time we got to see the heart of the company. You know, we got to see company behaving badly from the inside and how they talk to each other and the culture around that. So when we first got the leak, we are lucky enough, we've got a fabulous technology team and they created this wonderful product called DataShare. So the 124, 125,000 files were all loaded into DataShare and they're OCR'd. Now some of them were in English, some of them were in French, but they actually built in like a translation uh, tool in there. And when we, first, like, when we first get leaks like this, we sit down and we read like everybody else. We spend a long time reading. Uh, the technology team, they actually create like a file path for the data so we can see what's in different folders and we can kind of navigate like, it's like moving through rooms almost and seeing the contents of each one. But um, we sit down and we read and we start looking for patterns and just things like, we start putting in names just like the reporters trying to figure out what's going on. And I remember putting in like Macron's name and we got like 2000 hits. We're like, okay, this is a runner. That's time to sit down and start reading and see what we have. Um, So while we do absolute like data analysis and we use different programming languages, I think like one of our greatest tools is just our reporter brains and our sense of a story.
2: Yeah. The, the, the key of like identifying also key file types and recognizing well this is different from before before we were looking at let's say who are the final owners of uh, offshore entities and like what did they use these offshore companies for this was not a case here we were just like figuring out who contacted who and for what, what was the purpose of that communication and uh, did they meet or didn't they meet like, and then, so for instance, something that uh, Miguel, uh, one person from our team did was like, well, with uh, programming, uh, he extracted all the email addresses and all the names of the people behind those email addresses, the domains, So we could actually see were they like government like email addresses tied like domain names that they were tied to governments companies? So we could start kind of exploring potential interesting people that they might have been contacting. Augie, for instance, also look at the the stakeholders uh, information. So they had like lists that we had, like spreadsheets where people they were interested in contacting. So you might have public officials like politicians, but also um, lobbying groups like citizen groups, uh, think tanks and so on. And like then combining all that information, we were able to find like I think over one thousand eight hundred and fifty stakeholders that were interested in reaching out like in about 29 countries and some EU uh, institutions too. So that was allowing us like, well, what they're like kind of ready to contact all these people. So how do we figure out who are they interested in reaching out? And Delphine, for instance, also looked into academics. So also not only public officials, but like how they were interested also in reaching out and work in communication with uh, researchers, academics at universities who would like, potentially produce positive research for Uber or research that at the end Uber would use for their lobbying efforts too.
1: Lobbying is like one of these kind of opaque things. It can be such a black box. And um, while it can have massive impact around the world, it's really difficult to see from the, ins- like, from the outside how it's actually done. Uh, so that was what was amazing, is getting to see the heart into this huge lobbying machine and how they're operating. Um, so we, we ex- Miguel helped and we took out, there's three different types of calendars in the files. Um, so we went and we extracted them all. And then we created a huge spreadsheet. Part of it was programmatically. um, And the other part was me also just reading through the PDFs to make sure that we hadn't missed anything. And we went and we created this huge bug long list of meetings. So this is between Uber executives and public officials. So whether everyone from like a mayor up to like a European commissioner to vice president, if there was a meeting scheduled, we pulled it out. Now, the thing is, like meetings, I don't know about your calendar, but mine, sometimes they don't always happen. So just because the meeting was in the calendar was not proof enough for us. So from there, we had to go and we had to. Look for every individual person, go look through all the correspondence, the text messages, the emails, and look for proof that actually Uber executives were in a room with that person. Because what we found sometimes is the meeting was scheduled, it was cancelled last minute. Other times, like uh, the the government minister just wouldn't turn up and would send some of their staff instead. Um, So that was the first part of it, to make sure the meetings actually happened. And then the second part was to see if they were declared. Now, the European Commission, which is an incredibly powerful body, they have a transparency register, so if you're a European commissioner or if you're one of their uh, cabinet, um, I think they're, I think they're tr- called cabinet uh, members, but they're, they're people who are like their chief of staff, you have to declare meetings. And so this is all publicly available data. We love public data at the ICHJ. It just they really, it really augments stories. It gives us this new depth, the new flavor, and uh, we always try to jump on board if there's public information. So we went and we we verified all the meetings happened. And then we had to go through the public register and check had they been declared or not. And overall, I think we found over 100 meetings had happened that we could definitely confirm between 2013 and 2017, which is a huge amount. But then when you put that in the context of the stakeholders data where there's 1850 people they're trying to target, you see that how much effort goes into trying to get people on the hook and then how many meetings actually transpire. But we still found like amazing things in the conversations, like they were going to meeting US ambassadors, getting advice. And um, I think I saw a mentioned an email where there was, was a, uh, a Uber investor was in a sauna talking to a US ambassador. And so this is re- what was really interesting, getting to see what, what they were doing really. And may I ask what country that was? Yeah, I think it was in Finland. Uh,
0: interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And so I guess my question is like, what are some of the most interesting things that you found? And how did that allow you to sort of divide it up into different chunks and be like, okay, we're gonna go after this
1: angle? You know, I think the first thing was obviously to to try to find the prime ministers. You always wanted to start at the top and look at the the vice president. Uh we, there was a lot of planning that Uber did around Davos, the World Economic Forum, in 2016. So we had their spreadsheets and their planning docs. Um, we also went through all their correspondence and text messages over that time period. Um, and that was fascinating. We saw that there was a, a, a meeting with Joe Biden as well, uh, between Travis, who was the CEO at the time, and Joe Biden, uh, which was not declared. And... Um, we, we saw, I think there was another meeting with Enda Kenny, uh, the former Irish Taoiseach or Prime Minister. We also, I mean, they also met with the President of Estonia and Benjamin Netanyahu, who is then the Prime Minister of Israel, and then the Prime Ministers of Luxembourg, Norway, and Mark Root. And you saw the relationships develop. I remember reading kind of some text messages where I think it was Mark Root said he was telling uh, McGann that they were being very aggressive. Um, And, you know, we see all the relationships with uh, Macron developing as well, and the text message exchange there.
2: Yeah, we had, I think, at least six world leaders, like so, and and itself, like the 100 meetings that Kerry was talking about, I think it was also interesting to see the scope of like their planning on reaching to stakeholders. And this was only tied to 29 countries, but it gives you a snapshot of like how they were planning uh, to go like around the world, like, and and also what happened afterwards, like in terms of, um, I think also there, like something that was interesting that was not focused fully focused on the data work we did, but like all the tactics that they used to thwart regulations and law enforcement, like I think it was about six countries when like they basically had something called the skill switch, like they were just like Turn off like kind of everything so like that, that it wouldn't be possible for authorities to gather all the materials and on 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 the company in that location when they were like new knowing that like they might get a visit from authorities that like all the details about that can be found in the stories
0: absolutely i mean it's pretty dark and shady behavior that we're seeing sort of across or we've seen across silicon valley over the years you know obstructing justice uh Or just even like the way Uber operated with its data on the App Store. Tim Cook apparently was not happy about that. And there's a behavior problem here.
1: Yeah, they're moving fast and they're breaking things. And they're they're trying to break industries, really. Um, and it, like, it was really interesting when we saw the context of, like, I knew about the protests in Marseille um, in 2015, where you had cars overturned and on fire, and then you see text messages from that time between McGann and Macron, uh, where he's essentially asking for help. Um, because they came in and they suspended uh, some of the, I think they're called the TGV licences. And so it it was really interesting to see from that perspective, like how aggressive they were moving into these countries and how they were just trying to upend the law and how they were trying to change regulations by aggressively lobbying. From, I think it was like when the European Commissioners for Transport and the Vice President of the European Commission as well, um, they were definitely moving fast and breaking things um, and asking for you know forgiveness, not permission.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, a lot of that. <laughs> And speaking of which, I wonder if you could just talk to us briefly about um, the tax evasion aspect of this. I know you didn't necessarily work on this piece of it, but I would just be curious. If you mentioned it briefly earlier, but if you'd like to elaborate a bit on that.
1: Um, they They offered to... Remember that they offered to collect taxes on behalf of drivers for the countries, and that they had some of their their tax structures going through the Caribbean.
2: There's a full story our colleague Sheila Alechi wrote wrote on on it on the tax tax aspect, like so that like the like there, there are some things in terms of like the conversations that like we could get through the emails in terms and and communications in terms of um how, how much attention and like or tension there is, for instance, in, in Europe, like related to like there's your the tax structure, like the fact that they use Netherlands, they also go to the Caribbean, but then shifting that attention towards the Uber drivers too. And like what then like what kind of taxes could be collected through the drivers? So because it, when they're using, depends on the jurisdictions that they're using, like then the taxes that get land, like end up landing in the countries where they operate. So that's that's a bit like, so everything is moved to some specific jurisdictions. But uh, we, we were not at the heart of that story, but uh, but more details can be found in, in our website and, and full of uh, Sheila's story.
0: And I wonder, are there any other angles or parts to this that you'd like to talk about
1: you know, what I find interesting, well, uh, a couple of months ago, I got into a taxi in Dublin and I had the usual conversation where the driver asked me where I worked. And I was like, oh, you wouldn't know it. It's a small, you know, nonprofit in DC. And he's like, oh, try me, try me. And I was like, I say, Jane, he's like, oh, the Uber files. Oh my God. And it turns out that lots of taxi drivers know about the Uber files, which um, is
0: interesting. From a taxi driver perspective, right? They were really the ones who were in harm's way right
1: yeah 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 these people were afraid of uh uber taking away their livelihoods you know they pay for their they pay for their licenses they pay for those um oh i'm trying to remember what they're called in ireland it's not medallions like in new york but the plates i think they pay a lot for those plates um and we were looking at having those regulations completely offended and um you know Revolutionizing. I know that some politicians thought that this was a great way of dealing with unemployment, more flexible employment. And um, it's really interesting how sometimes world politicians think that Silicon Valley has a solution to everything, and then you see how it plays out in a couple of years. I'm like, we we tracked our, our colleagues tracked the expansion of Uber. I think and what twenty. 2017 they were in over 30 countries around the world and then since 2022 well, of this year we've seen like a massive retraction from big big industry or big uh, markets like China and Russia I think from Thailand too and um, so it's kind of interesting to see that kind of like the surge and then the withdrawal but you know it needs to be said as well that Travis left the company in as CEO in 2017 too.
2: Yeah, so something that is interesting too, like an, something like the Uber files, which is when we were looking at this at the beginning, the files are not like 20, were not 2022 files. So they, they cover like 2013 to uh, 2017. So a period of, um, of expansion. So then it's it's kind of telling us a story of something that happened before that explains what were the goals towards expanding, like what were they doing at the time? So you have figures that at, at the time might have had other political roles that nowadays are in higher, at higher level uh, roles and in, in politics in different countries. But the fact that it it was happening in the past, like, like um, 2013, 2017, is like, well, is. Is this a, is this still a story? So what like and what is what is known and what is not known? So there were there have been stories about like about Uber in the US, but then like what we had here was a story that connected like their uh, how they were working on those years in other countries in other parts of the world, and we got like those internal details and how the communications happened. But it was like versus like that the big question of the public interest was was important for us. So is this is this still important? And at the end, like we concluded, yes, because it like it it tells you also the story of the time period. It was like then the company goes to the stock exchange later on. So we had like there were things that we tried to check into public records that were not publicly available until the company went public. So it's like then understanding that story of that moment and then understanding what, what's 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 a bit what's happening now? Because then, of course, when we reach for common, they say "Well, this this happened at, at this time. We have taken measures. We were aware of these things." So, and then it's still like, "Well, questioning. Well, what are the practices nowadays? We don't we don't have all the answers, but like it tells you a bit like how a, a tech company, like uh, like well tech service company, I'd say, it starts in an industry and tries to enter a full market, and what are the tactics and how it's connected when uh, the countries are still trying to figure out how to regulate them.
1: One of the problems we had is that, um, yeah, like Emi said, before Uber IPO'd in 2019, they were a black box financially. We could not access, there was no publicly available records of their financial statements. There was nothing. So we didn't know how much they were spending on lobbying. We could check the registers, but, you know, it, that was, they were pretty small amounts. You can look up like the E-register, there's US registers and there's a French register as well. Um, also, it became really obvious that there was a problem with how we track lobbying in Europe. Um, there is not enough transparency. We should have for every country, there should be records of um, meetings and interactions between public officials and private companies. We should know how much they're donating. We should know how much, how many of these lobbyists are like registered with the parliaments and who can walk in and walk out. So we can see how many people are essentially being thrown at this. We saw like that we were really effective at changing the conversation and the narrative away from their tax policies to like the tax position of the drivers in a lot of cases. Um, and that was uh, surprising to see how effective that machine is.
0: And I just wonder if we could talk a little bit about the impact of this investigation so far. What, what do you think that's been?
1: I'm, I'm really hoping that one of the impacts is going to be that um, you have more people in companies like Mark McGann who he was head of like lobbying in, for Europe uh, in Uber, and you know who who sat down and thought to himself that maybe he had done harm and wanted to rectify it several years down the line, and became a whistleblower and came forward and allowed us to do these amazingly powerful stories. Like I'm hoping that it makes more people think about what they've done in the past and part of their jobs, and to maybe come forward.
0: Yeah, and I wonder as well if that was a lot of self preservation there or given he was already being attacked physically or he was worried about his photos being of his family and friends. And I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty dark road he was on. And, uh, it's, it's amazing that he came out, but I also think he probably, it probably protected him in a way by, by revealing his, you know, identity.
1: Yeah, perhaps. Um, What I did see, though, from going through the calendar was like his schedule was unbelievable at the time. He was in and out of countries every two days. The amount of travel and the amount of ground that Uber was covering and sending him to was just shocking. It was stunning. I mean, obviously,
0: impact-wise, what we'd love to see, right, is if, like you were suggesting, Harry, the EU would change or Europe would change its laws around and, and be more transparent around this lobbying effort, right?
1: Yeah, like I know the Irish lobbying website is great. In some ways, you can see all the correspondence between lobbyists and different government ministers. But I'd love to see like a register of lobbyists up there so you can see the names of people. I'd love to see the political donations. You know, um, it just it sort of isn't enough.
0: Yeah. And I also GDPR always seems to be used as excuse not to reveal someone's identity, you know? <laughs> particularly in Ireland. I don't know.
2: Yeah, but it's it's interesting tracing lobbying across countries becomes like when you have many like uh, companies that are they they are not only operating locally they operate globally so tr- tracing lobbying efforts across countries becomes something that is super valuable for the public for like for for journalists for the world but the fact that like the quality of what you find across countries varies so much that brings you like kind of a data problem that like what do they need to declare in different countries. Changes is this public or not? Like, is there even a, a regulation tied to it? And it might vary. Like, there's something that you could have at the EU level, but then if we're talking about like global companies and other countries, other countries, there's no track of lobbying records. When you're trying to see, well, how a company that uh, works across borders operates in different parts of the world, then. Some things that you have are not necessarily comparable. So you have like huge data challenges when it comes to tracing these things and and understanding. But on the other hand, like it's when when we see some snapshots in some countries, we can also understand what is the value of that transparency and how it can help advance uh, reporting efforts, but also how can help like, you know, citizens, authorities, regulators when they do their part of their, their job to understand where they stand in terms of, uh, of like, the people who are reaching out to different uh, institutions, organizations, and so on. It
1: would be amazing if they could harmonize, like, uh, lobbying regulations across Europe so that we could look and see what these multinationals are doing in multi-countries and see how their tactics are changing from country to country.
0: Absolutely. And I just wonder, you know, what's maybe one thing you both have learned or from this investigation that you'd like to share with us? Feels like you learned a lot, but if you could pick one thing <laughs> that you didn't know before,
1: I was naive and I did not realize that, like um, you know, government ministers and prime ministers they text uh, pri- like company officials. I didn't realize, like, I knew that there was cozy relationships, but I didn't think that they were sitting at home texting them. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so either.
2: <laughs> it's good to remember, like, the connecting data with public records is essential for us. And something that people don't talk a lot about, but like everyone on our team is involved in that is the fact checking and validation. So there is a lot of effort organizing data. There is a lot of effort structuring, like there's an effort, big effort analyzing, but we need like different pair of eyes looking at it, like validating the information. As Kerry was saying, we have a calendar, but how do we know the meeting happened or not? Like that's, that's, that's the next step.
1: Yeah, it's so crucial. A couple of partners came to me and said, look, we found these meetings there. You know, they definitely have the because whenever we do our analysis, we share it with all the partners so that they can use it for their stories once it's fact checked. And a couple of partners came and said, look, we found these meetings, you know, you missed them. Um, and one or two cases, they were right. There was just such a trove of information. We didn't capture everything. Um, but there was a couple of cases where it's like, no, those meetings. Yes, they're in the calendars. but They didn't happen you know, there was a last minute cancellation. So it's like just collaborating, working together and um, making sure that everything is fact-checked and fact-checked and fact-checked again, because we're in the business of being right.
0: That brings me to my next question. Like, describe the mix of skills that you have at ICIJ and also with your partners. Like, what are, what are some of the things For data journalists listening to this who are interested in maybe moving into more of the investigative data side of things, what what do they need? And and what are you you looking for?
2: Going to what Carrie was mentioning too, like the power of collaboration is, is central. So you need people who are willing to share. You need people who are willing to trust each other. So you can have like best investigative journalist, best data reporter in the world. And if these people are not keen to share with others, that wouldn't work. Like here, like we had uh, journalists from like uh, more than 40 media outlets in 29 countries um, and they all have mixed skills, but, and and internally at ICJ, like even even our data and research team has a combination of skills. Like the reporting team has a combination of skills because you have people a very wide range of, uh, of journalists like you have journalists who are like a like best like with human sources and have like the best sources on, on the field like the like they they have investigated like local uh, authorities local politicians in their countries and like know a lo- all a lot about uh, human sources and you have like very good like people who know how to handle data who know all about encryption coding and so on you have a wide range between those two extremes then you have people who are very good at reading materials and finding like reading even like the footnotes of like of documents and and, like understanding research like uh, you have great people who are experts on doing freedom of information requests so the magic happens when you combine all those skills so we need everyone. And that's, that's, that's the magic and the power of collaboration in our projects
1: we deal with data that's so dirty sometimes so dirty like data scientists wouldn't touch it you know so I think a lot of it as well is that we're very lucky we've got a really strong team and a really wonderful editor and we all drink lots of coffee and we talk to each other all the time and we sit down for hours and hours and we read we work in spreadsheets we check each other's work and everybody helps each other a little bit you know um Oggi and Miguel are just wizards at coding. I do a little bit of programming, a little bit of research. Uh, Yelena and Margot and Delphine are incredible at fact-checking. They're incredible at research. They do lots of Excel work. So it's just all like mix and match. And then we've got Emmy to guide us. Brilliant. And I just wonder, you know, in terms of
0: your tools um, and coding skills and your way of scraping data like what's in your toolbox carrie you're a data journalist what can you not live without
1: (laughs) yeah so honestly excel excel is always the first one and we use google sheets an awful lot um i also i use a bit of python i use Jupyter notebook and pandas um and uh I I read a huge amount. And I honestly I have notebooks. I structure information in my head, I write it all down and try to try make sense of it that way and then come up with plans.
2: Yeah, I think the key and I care was describing nicely, it's uh, we love our team, it's it's wonderful, is it's that combination of skill sets, like to me. Um, we need to to have like or develop a key set of mind on, on understanding what is our, the best data approach based on the data problem we have in front of us. So sometimes we require uh, like going with Python and like coding. And, and we have had like, we have several people who are like Python lovers. Like in the past in our team, we have also other people who used to do analysis with R and SQL. So, but the key was like the, set of mind in terms of like being critical to the data what are the problems we have to with the data like then what what are the things that we need to answer with code but then what are the things that we need to answer with art? like with uh, like excel or google sheets or like what what does require manual work so like like kind of balancing Automation and uh, and manual work and like different set of, of of skills and tools. So it's not about the tool, but it's about the mindset too. Like we don't always follow the same path, but we always have as very dirty, very messy problems sometimes when we're working with data. So we need to be very careful with with what we do and combine that like beauty of like all skill sets when when we're working on our projects.
0: And finally, I just wonder what advice you both have for journalists like about to embark on a data leak investigation of this size.
2: And you need to have a lot of coffee or tea, develop a lot of patience, like pick your favorite playlist to like to accompany when you're working on that. It takes time lots of patience and like being critical plan and plan a lot of time for fact checking and validation because otherwise if you just like do all the data work and then you just want to publish the next day it takes as much time as doing like the data work itself as it takes to fact check and validate so you need you need to plan for both things
1: yeah get some good teammates some good coffee sit down and take your time yeah like emmy said it can get overwhelming so take a breath Go for walks. <laughs> Go easy on yourself.
0: Marvelous. Well, thank you both for joining us today on Conversations with Data. That was absolutely fascinating hearing the inside kind of take on the Uber files. So thanks again.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having us.
0: A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today and to it for making this episode possible. FlockyNet is a web hosting company that was established in Iceland to provide safe harbor for freedom of speech, free press, and whistleblower projects. To claim your 15% off all of FlockyNet's servers and products, head over to their website and type in the promotion code DATAJOURNALISM. Remember that all registered DataJournalism.com users have access to free web space and domains through FlockyNet. Check out your profile today on how to claim it, or go to flockynet.is slash ejc.php. Want to hear more interesting discussions around data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host Tara Kelly and that's all for now. See you next time.